0: Our sermon text comes from Genesis 32, and I'm going to read verses 22 through 32. Hear the word of the Lord. The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven children and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Peniel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. This is God's word.
1: Y'all can have a seat. Preschoolers, y'all can head on out. Who are our teachers today? McElwain's. Y'all head on out with the McElwain's. Everybody else who's standing here with me, turn with me to Genesis chapter 32. We are continuing our journey through the book of Genesis. If you're new to Trace, one of our practices in preaching is to preach verse by verse through books of the Bible so that we give you the whole counsel of God And we're going to continue to do that by looking at Genesis 32. Now, I want to ask you a question right at the beginning here. There there are a lot of ways to handle this passage. And one thing I want to focus on is Jacob's spiritual journey, how he continues to change. Now, do you remember when you first became a Christian? Do you you remember when that was? Now, if if you can remember your life around that time, how many of you—now, be honest— how many of you, when you first became a Christian, you really felt deep down inside like your sinful days were over? They were in the past, that you know you have turned over a new leaf, you are a whole new person, you, found, you have this newfound faith, and it's going to empower you to do great things for the Lord and all these bad habits you had in the past and all these bad behaviors and all these bad attitudes, they are gone. You are renouncing them and you're done and and you get baptized and you demonstrate that change that's happened in your heart and you are learning all these things about the Lord and you just feel like there's no way that I'm going to sin again. And then, of course, it didn't take long and you start to sin in the exact same ways you were sinning, you know, the day before you became a Christian and you just say, huh. You know, I experienced this and it, and it actually led me, um, you know, years later when I was uh, 18, 19 years old to seriously question and doubt my salvation. I seriously did, you know, because it made sense. It only made sense if God is powerful to change my heart and I continue to struggle with the same sinful habits that I had before and, and they're not gone then obviously I've done something wrong and I'm not truly a Christian. That's That was the reasoning that, that I had. You know, the same, a similar thing happens when you get married. You get married and especially as you approach a wedding and you get closer to that time and there's just so much love in the air and there's so much romance and, you know, it, it feels so sweet and all your family's there and you're celebrating and you're partying. Woo, everyone's so happy and, you know, you're like, we're never going to, I'm never going to speak a Christian. Swear, no way! I'm not going to say one negative, one bad, one mean. How could I? How could I address this angel of a person in any kind of hateful way? There's no way that I'll do that. We are not going to fight in our marriage. How could we fight? We love each other too much. And then on the way to the honeymoon, you fight, right? That's it. it just it's just how it works. Now we wish that in our marriages and in conversion that we could automatically. That by virtue of getting married or by virtue of becoming a Christian, that just by that very action, automatically, there's no more sinful thoughts, no more sinful attitudes, no more sinful actions. I mean, don't you wish it worked that way? But that's not how salvation works. That's not how Christianity works. And over time, once we start to get comfortable with this reality... We may even start to wonder if true and lasting change is even possible. If faith in Jesus isn't enough to change my habits, what on earth is going to change my habits? This is one of the most fundamental questions that any person can ask. One of the most fundamental questions Can I change? Everybody deals with this question. It's a deeply personal question that you rarely share with other people or talk about with other people. It's a deeply uncomfortable question that we don't even like to reflect on ourselves. But if we were honest with ourselves and our own hearts, it is one of the most desperate longings we have to change in one area of your life or another, you are likely saying to yourself, I have got to change. I have to be different. I cannot stay the same. And, and here's the thing about change. You would think it would be one of the easiest things in the world to change yourself. You, you admit, and, and you, just, you submit this, you're like, I can't change other people. You know, maybe you're struggling in a certain relationship or maybe you have a family member and you talk about all the time. They have to change. I'm worried about them if they don't change. But you also know there's only so much I can do. I'll pray for them, but I mean, I can't change them. But we feel like it's different with ourselves. that We can change ourselves. But in reality, and those of you who have been Christians for a while, you know this. Changing yourself is not so easy. And one of the main reasons for this is that we are often blind to the ways that we need to change. We don't even see it. It's so much easier to see how another person needs to change than it is to see, to look in the mirror and see how you need to change. And I think the longer you're a Christian, the more time you spend in Christ, the more tired you get of what feels like, Deep divide and inconsistency of the inner hypocrisy. You get tired of yourself. You get tired of the messes that you keep making, and you get so tired of the habits or the addictions or the weird, strange behaviors in your heart that you just want rid of them. Now, what do we do with all that frustration and all that fatigue? You're desperate for change, you want to change but you have no idea how to make it happen in a real and lasting way. Genesis 32 is a beautiful, wonderful, powerful passage and story for people who need to change. This is the story of a desperate man who is deeply flawed, who is caught in what will become for him the fight of his life. Jacob has sort of reached a fork in the road, and he's wrestling with God. But it's in this moment that he is changed forever. But here's what we're going to learn about his change. Jacob's change comes in the most surprising way possible, a way that Jacob would have never expected. So if you're struggling to change in any area of your life, and I know that you are, then you need to see two things from this passage. First, we need to see the need for change. And second, we need to see the key to change. The need and the key. Um, if, if we go back to the beginning of, of this passage, we're going to see why Jacob still needed to change. And this is something we have to admit up front. If we, if we can't agree on this, we're going to struggle the rest of the sermon. Christians, Christians need to change, not just non believers. Christ, Christians need to change. The gospel, we believe, really does change us from the moment that we believe it. We really do believe that the Holy Spirit regenerates or changes our hearts, that we're given, we read earlier, we're given a heart of flesh to replace the heart of stone. We really do believe that we rise spiritually from death to life at the moment of conversion. But Christians still need to change. And the moment that we neglect that or deny that is the moment that we will stop following after Jesus. Because in order to follow after Jesus, you have to recognize that I'm not as I should be. I need to change. I need to be more in his likeness. Now, now the sinful habits, this is something we also have to admit, while we, we have to change, the sinful habits of our hearts Die hard. You see, Jacob doesn't know it yet. But just because he has the Lord as his God, and that's what we saw last week, if you remember, that Jacob has this dream, and it's there for the first time that we see Jacob praising the Lord, that he recognizes, you are my God, I belong to you. Just because that's happened, it doesn't mean that he is where he should be or is what he should be. He's not quite there yet. And we're in the very same place. Neither are we. You see, at this point in the story, Jacob is on his way home. The Lord told him in Genesis 31 to return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. Now, Jacob has spent a lot of time in the land of his uncle Laban. He has since married twice over. He has multiple children. He, he has uh, servants. He has, he, uh, he, he's wealthy. We're going we're gonna to see in just a minute. But now he's on his way home. He's headed back home. This was uh, Rebecca, his mother's desire the whole time was that for, for a, a, a period of time, Jacob would be in exile, but that one day he would come home. And so he's on his way home. Now, this homecoming would be filled with just as much dread as it would be joy. On his way home, there's going to be a family reunion that Jacob has been dreading since he left. If you've been tracking with the story, here's where we are. We're finally here. Jacob is about to come face-to-face with Esau. Jacob is about to come face-to-face with Esau. This plot is unbelievable. It's unreal how Jacob steals Esau's blessing, how, how Jacob receives what was meant for Esau. Esau has this anger that festers and builds in his heart Jacob flees, he runs for his life, he spends many years away, and now he's coming back and, wait a minute, Esau's still there. He's about to come face to face with Esau. And in case you've forgotten, um, Esau, the day that Jacob left home, Esau had pledged that the day his father Isaac died would be the day that Jacob would die. Because Esau planned from that moment to kill him. And that's the last that Jacob has heard from Esau. And of course, since that time, Jacob's life has, has turned around significantly. He's, like I said, he has two wives. He has lots of kids. He, he has servants. He has animals. He's become a rich and successful man. But the problem he's having is that he's never dealt with his past. It's finally caught up to him, and now he's going to face it face to face. And so Jacob, he sends word to Esau that he's coming home. He sends word ahead. He sends his servants on, and he says, I need you to tell Esau that we're coming through. We're told in verse 6 of of Genesis 32 that Jacob's messengers return to him and they say, hey, look, Esau is coming to meet you. He heard that you're coming, and so his response was, he's going to come to meet you, and he's bringing 400 men with him. And, of course, we learn right after that that Jacob is very afraid. He's distressed. Because the million-dollar question in this moment in this story is, Will Esau come in peace to reconcile their relationship, or will Esau come in war to get his revenge? And he's coming with 400 men, that doesn't sound very peaceful. But Jacob has created this himself. He deserved any conflict that he might have with Esau, but he's, he's still uncertain, and he's distraught over it. Is Esau still wanting to kill Jacob, or has enough time passed for Esau to forgive him? Now, Jacob, this is something we didn't cover, he he really is in a tough spot because he's, he's stuck. He's stuck. We see that he's in this place. He sent his whole family across the stream, across this river. Now he's alone in the dark again, and he's stuck. He's stuck spiritually. He's stuck physically. Behind him is a life that he most definitely doesn't want to return to, a life with Laban. And he had all kinds of drama and trouble there. And so he doesn't want to go back there. And the Lord has already commanded him to go home. But in front of him is Esau, his brother, and his 400 men who most likely want to tear him apart. Jacob had to feel so scared, so trapped. All of his wealth, all of his prestige, all of his family might be gone within 24 hours. So what does Jacob do in this moment of fear and stress? He relies on his instincts. He relies on his instincts. And these instincts, although Jacob now has the Lord as his God, these instincts have yet to be sanctified by the Spirit. And this is a a wonderful lesson for us. When we are under duress, when we are stressed, when we are anxious, when we're afraid, we will resort to our instincts. Whatever our instincts are. And and sometimes those are instincts of anger. Envy, lust, you name it. And and our instincts are usually the hardest parts of ourselves to change. Here are two instincts that Jacob relied on in this crucial moment. First, Jacob was still trying to save himself, he's still trying to save himself. You see, Jacob is trying to appease Esau through gifts. He learns that Esau's out there. He's got his 400 men. And so what Jacob decides to do is he, he splits his, his company up. He, he divides his estate. But then he says, here's what we're going to do is we're headed this way. Before we get there, we're going to send gifts to Esau. And then we're going to send more gifts. And then we're going to send more gifts. And wave after wave of servants coming from Jacob to eat, to meet Esau. They're just bringing gift after gift after gift after gift. And he's sending these gifts to try to soften his brother's heart. Jacob is literally trying to spare his own life through his vast resources. He's trying to buy his way to safety. He's trying to face Esau with the strength of his wealth. Now, he's done something like this in the past, if you remember. He tried to save himself once before. He learned that his father was about to bless his brother Esau. And the blessing brought tons of inheritance. It, it brought all the wealth that, that Jacob wanted for himself. And if you don't receive the blessing, then you're basically going to fade from the pages of history and you are a nobody. And Jacob didn't want to be a nobody. He, he wanted to matter. He wanted to be significant. He wanted approval from others. And so Jacob, along with his mother, they deceive their, uh, uh, his father and they steal the blessing to try to save himself. There's another instinct that Jacob relies on. Jacob is still trying to justify himself. And we see that because Jacob doesn't just send gifts to Esau to try to appease him, to try to buy or purchase his redemption, his, essentially paying a ransom um, for himself. He also sends a message. <laughs> and I want you to notice what he wants Esau to hear from him. I mean, of all the things he could say, I don't know, hey, man, I am so sorry for what I did. I'm so sorry. I, I was so wrong. I shouldn't have done that. I mean, you know, a confession would have been nice. Repentance would have been nice. But Jacob's stressed, and he's relying on his instincts, and he still needs to change. So this is what he says instead. In Genesis 32, 4 through 5. I have sojourned with Laban. And stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, and female servants. I have sent to my Lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. What is Jacob wanting to communicate here? Of all the things he could say to a man who might be wanting to kill him, he chooses to, to send him a list of uh, uh, just an inventory of everything that he has in his possession, what's, what's he doing here? Well, pragmatically, he's wanting Esau to know that he's not coming alone. You know, he's like, it's not just me rolling up here. I, you know, I'm not the same exiled, you know, brother who was fleeing for his life all those years ago. I've, I've kind of, I've come up in the world a little bit. I've got, I've got some stuff. But beneath the surface. There seems to still be this self created value system at work in Jacob's heart. Jacob still feels the need to prove himself worthy. I have oxen, I have donkeys, I have flocks, I have servants. This is another way of saying, Look, Esau, look at me. I've made it. I'm wealthy, I'm successful, I'm worthy of the blessing. Okay, I shouldn't have I shouldn't have stolen it, but look, I'm worthy of it. They said that you will be your name will be great, and you will be great. Look, I'm great. Look. He wants favor, not just for his life to be spared. He's not just trying to save himself. He's trying to justify himself. He's trying to justify his very existence. Jacob wanted to prove himself worthy to Esau. He needed to change. This is a bad instinct for us to have. Along with his fear of war. He feared rejection from his brother. And that was just as powerful, even if it's in a very different way. Satan just wanted Esau to spare him, he wanted Esau to accept him, to approve of him. What Jacob is still failing to realize is that he already has the only approval and acceptance that ultimately matters. He has approval and he has acceptance from God, God has justified him. God has saved him. He has declared Jacob worthy of the blessing despite his unworthiness. But even though Jacob probably has some kind of knowledge of this, he's not living as if it's true. He's still trying to earn his place in the world so that he can finally feel content and satisfied. You see, when you treasure blessing and approval and acceptance the way that Jacob did, old habits die hard. Jacob's still trying to appease others and earn acceptance through his own strength. Now, despite these poor instincts that Jacob continues to rely upon, we see that Jacob truly does belong to God, and he truly does believe in God. He prays to God. Look look at uh, Genesis 32, verse 9. This, this is, uh, the, I think, one of the longer prayers in the book of Genesis. This is beautiful. Here's what he says. O God of my father Abraham, and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, Return to your country and to your kindred, that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. And this day closes his prayer. But you said, I will surely do you good. And make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. What a beautiful prayer. This is a prayer of trust. This is a prayer of reliance on God's promises. This is the prayer of a man who is in relationship with God. So here's what we see in Jacob. This is a portrait of him. Jacob trusts in God. And simultaneously, Jacob is prone to rely on his own strength To get him out of trouble, he prays, Deliver me, O God, but then he's trying to deliver himself through his own actions. I mean, this shows us so clearly that needing to change, needing to have our sinful instincts, our sinful habits worked on, doesn't mean that we're not Christians. The opposite is true. The Christian life, the life of faith, is a life of change, it's a life of continual repentance. If, if you're familiar with Martin Luther and his 95 Theses, are, are you aware of the first one? You know, he, he nails that document on the doors of the Wittenberg Church and sparks the Protestant Reformation. You know what the first, the first thesis of the 95 Theses is? It goes like this. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. You don't just repent one time. The entire life of a believer is one of repentance. Jacob is so much like us. He's in the darkness. He's trusting in God. But he's still prone to live as if it's all up to him. It's up to him to save himself, to justify himself, to prove that he matters in the world. What instincts are working beneath the surface of your heart this morning? What habits do you turn to when you're under duress or when life is hard? But more importantly, we're going to answer this question right now. How does God work in us when our idols are still functioning in our hearts? What's the key to change? So we've seen that we need to change, but what is the key to change? This is where we get to this really strange wrestling match. The key to change is so very surprising. Now, as as I detail all that stuff, some of you are probably thinking of like, yeah, I know, and the way that you change habits is, is really practical. There are some things that you need to do, and, and you know, I, I've read all, a lot of the books about that, and habit formation is really important and has a lot of uh, practicality for Christianity. Um, but here's what we typically think when we think we need to change, what we can do. What's the key to change? Well, just, just do it. You know, we think we can change through our willpower. If we're just strong enough, we can change. Or we think that we can change through our brain power. If we're just smart or clever enough, we'll figure out a way to be different or better. Or maybe, maybe we think we can change through, you know, our hearts. And we think that if we would just believe, you know, uh, um, more vigorously, if we had a stronger faith, then we would be different. But, but God interrupts Jacob here in the darkness, in this place, while he's all alone. And he shows him that the key to change is very surprising. It's actually not found in our strength at all. Or our wisdom. It's found in our weakness. And it originates with God. Here, here's what happened. Uh, Jacob, he, he sends all these gifts, all these presents ahead. He, he divides his estate so that, you know, if, if Esau's coming to war, maybe he'll get one group, but the other group can flee. But Jacob finally sends his wives and he sends his children across the stream to safety. And now Jacob is left completely alone in the dark and here's what we read in verses 24 and 25 a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob he touched his hip socket and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him two questions we're going to answer who is this man and why is he wrestling with Jacob first who is this man I can't tell you. I remember the first time I read this when I was a kid. Uh, Instead of listening to sermons, what I would do is usually just take the Bible and just kind of skim through and and just read. And I remember coming to this, and I was like, oh, that's interesting enough to read. And I read this, and I was like, I am so confused as to what's going on here. It says there's a man wrestling with Jacob, but then he says it's God. But Jacob, like, almost wins the wrestling match, but it's supposed to be God. Like, what is going on here? Well, here's what we know. The man is God. The man is God. More precisely, the man is either, and I'm not going to answer the question today, he's either an angel of God in human form or this is a pre-incarnate appearance of God the Son, Jesus Christ. One of the two. And we know this both from Jacob and from one of the prophets. So first, Jacob ends up naming the place Peniel, which means the face of God. And, And Jacob says that he is naming the place Peniel because it was in this place that he had seen God face to face and yet his life had been delivered. So Jacob is aware, I was fighting with God. Whether it's an angel of the Lord or or whether it's Jesus himself, he realized he's fighting with God. And the reason I even like have those two options is because of the commentary we have in Hosea 12. Hosea 12 gives us this brief commentary on this passage, and it says that Jacob strove with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. So whether an angel of God or Jesus himself, the, the same principle is true. God has come down from heaven to wrestle with Jacob. Why is he doing this? This is so strange. In short... Now, I just love how the passage flows. In short, God has come down to wrestle with Jacob as an answer to Jacob's prayer for deliverance. Jacob has prayed and asked for God to deliver him. And now God comes as a response to that prayer to deliver him by wrestling with him. And here's what's so interesting about this scene. Because... God answers this prayer by wrestling with him. And in the process of wrestling with him, he weakens him and changes him. He leaves him with a limp. That's emphasized here and even in the next chapter. But here's what's so interesting about this. God delivers Jacob from Esau not by changing his circumstances. He, doesn't, he could have put an end to Esau. He could have said, yeah, I'm going to deliver you from the hand of Esau and I'm going to send a plague or I'm going to, you know, do something. I'm going to send judgment upon Esau and he will be gone. He'll be out of your way. He doesn't do that. He doesn't change his circumstances at all. He doesn't even show Jacob a way to avoid Esau. Hey, look, if you'll just take this path, you can get away from him and escape. No, God delivers Jacob from Esau by changing Jacob's heart. It's amazing. He answers the prayer, he delivers him, but he does it in this surprising way he changes his heart. Jacob has been relying on his own strength for such a long time he's been trying to prove himself worthy of the blessing that he received from his father and from God and even in this fight with God you notice it Jacob is relying On his own strength. He struggles and he prevails, we read, for hours and hours against God. He's resisting and fighting what God is doing in him. And if that's not a powerful metaphor for you, I don't know if there there is one that exists. Now, the fight itself, as I said, is so strange. I've always been so uncomfortable with this. There's this back and forth, and Jacob seems like he's, he's about to win. And the reason that it bothers me a little bit is because I think of like myself stepping in the ring with like 1990s Mike Tyson, you know, to someone infinitely stronger and greater than me, and I step in the ring with him. I mean, how long am I going to last in, in the ring with Mike Tyson? I'm just going to take two steps, and then I'll be, wake up in a hospital, you know? I mean, he would knock me out. And here we have Jacob, and he's like, he's holding his own against the Lord. And it's just, it's so strange. But, you know, I, when I think about this wrestling match, it, it reminds me of all the times that I wrestle with, with the boys at home. And if you're not aware, I have, I have three sons, and um, we wrestle and we wrestle physically. We wrestle in a lot of other ways, too, um, with, with three boys at our house. But, but when I'm wrestling with them, it, it all sort of goes the same way. We fight and we fight and we fight for a long time. And they struggle and they struggle and they prevail and they hold on. And and it looks like that they're about to, to win. And by the end of the match, while I'm still able, you know, I'll just throw them down, pin them on the ground. And the fight's over. And dad steps in and shows his strength. And we, we fight like this all the time. And this is essentially what God is doing with Jacob. In the midst of his battle with Jacob, he reaches out and shows Jacob his strength. With a single touch, with a single touch, God dislocates Jacob's hip socket, one of the strongest parts of the human body. And Jacob is wounded in a way that gives him a limp that stays with him the rest of his life by a single touch. Jacob, the picture here, Jacob is wounded in his strength. God breaks Jacob at one of his strongest points. What? Why? Why? What's he doing? I love what Sinclair Ferguson said about this passage. He said, in order to have Jacob's heart God is prepared to dislocate Jacob's hip. Jacob is wounded in his strength because God is going right for his heart. God doesn't come down in this moment of fear and despair and give Jacob a pep talk. He doesn't encourage him. He doesn't pat him on the back, rub his shoulders, doesn't give him a hug. He dislocates his hip. Have you ever felt like your life may have been put out of joint by God in one way or another? Have you ever felt like that? Have you ever had your plans, your dreams, your desires, your goals maybe upended? Maybe it feels like they were dislocated. If you've ever experienced anything like that, have you ever considered? That God is involved in that and that his actions are not just to test your faith to see how obedient you'll be, but instead to actually change your heart. See, the key to change your heart for good is sometimes the dislocation of something that makes you strong. Because we need to see that in reality, we are weak here's the thing about dislocated hips dislocated plans or habits or dreams that always hurts so we don't we don't look forward to it if you do anything before you leave today i want you to identify something what is the one thing in your life that makes you feel strong what is it what is that thing that makes you feel so sufficient and worthy in life It'd be the thing, maybe it's the thing that you put on your spiritual resume, you know, that thing that you think is going to give, grant you the acceptance and belonging and blessing that you want so badly. It's probably something that brings you a ton of comfort. it's, It's probably something that you feel that if you didn't have it, your life would be over. What's the point of living now if I don't have this thing? Its presence helps you sleep at night. It gives you a deep sense of security. It's what you're most proud of in yourself. You probably think about it a lot. You probably talk about it a lot. What is the strong place for you? And if God wounded it, weakened it, or took it away, how would you respond? This is what he's doing with Jacob here. Sometimes the only way to change is for God to do for you what he's doing for Jacob. Tim Keller put it this way. God sometimes has to wrestle us into a changed life. Sometimes he has to wrestle us into a changed life. Instead of comfort us into a changed life. In order to change, sometimes we need our idols smashed. Sometimes we need weakened where we feel strongest. Here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that every bad or every challenging or every painful thing that happens to you is God trying to teach you a lesson. What I am saying is that in God's providence, one of the ways that we can be sure that we can continue growing and continue changing for good in life, even when we feel stuck like Jacob, is that he will love us enough to wrestle us and weaken us so that we can see the worthlessness of our idols and our feelings of self-sufficiency. Jacob so badly needed this reminder. You're not strong enough, Jacob. You're not strong enough for this. You can't change your own heart, Jacob. You can't deliver yourself, Jacob. You see, in the midst of Jacob's rise to success... Everything that he's accomplished in trying to prove himself worthy of the blessing, he's forgotten that he never was worthy of the blessing and that he never will be worthy of the blessing. Embracing our weakness leads to true and lasting change in our hearts because it gives us a clearer awareness of who we are in light of who God is. Jacob needed a clearer understanding of where he stood in light of God. Change really just comes through honesty. Honesty about ourselves and honesty about God. We really are weak. We really are messed up. And yet we go around to try to convince other people and convince ourselves otherwise. We make foolish decisions and we create all kinds of messes in our attempt to look strong and well put together. But God is so different from us. He really is strong. He doesn't have to pretend. He really is good. He really is gracious. And he chooses to bless sinners like us despite ourselves, not because of ourselves. Our justification, our salvation is found in his strength, not ours. And and we receive blessing, not through the strength of earning it, but through the weakness of submitting to God who gives it. So this is the key to our change. Is there an area in your life where you need to change? How can you do that? Not by being stronger. The key to change, the key to growth, to become what God wants you to be is weakness. Inner change comes not through strength but through weakness, through realizing we don't have what it takes, that we aren't that impressive and that we aren't as strong as we want to make out. Now, if, if you can't understand this, you'll never understand the cross. You'll never understand the cross if you can't understand this. That strength comes through weakness. That, that change and victory and deliverance comes not through strength but through weakness. This pattern of victory through weakness culminates in the death of Jesus. Here's, here's, how, here's how it worked God the Father sent God the Son to save, to deliver humanity from enemies outside of us, Satan and death, and from enemies within, sin. Now, how did Jesus do this? How did he deliver us from sin and death? Not through strength. Not not through a powerful display. That's what the disciples kept waiting for. They're like, he's the Messiah. He's the Savior. He's come to deliver us. And they were waiting for him to overthrow the Romans, to reign on David's throne until the end of time. But he didn't do that. Jesus was born to a young virgin. His earthly father was a forgotten carpenter. He was born in a backwoods town, Bethlehem. Nobody knew much about Bethlehem. They'd forgotten all about it. As an adult, he was homeless. When some people finally saw him for what he was, that he was the Messiah who had come to save us and they were telling other people about him, the crowds responded and they said, the carpenter's son? What's wrong with you guys? The kid from Nazareth? No, I I don't think he could be the Messiah. How did this man who was unimpressive in the eyes of the world save humanity? Through arrest and unjust trials. Through beatings and ridicule. Ultimately, through a humiliating death on a Roman cross. His mangled body hanging in victory through weakness. Jesus won for us the only salvation that matters. He granted us the only justification we truly need. He appeased the one whose face we cannot even see and live. And he defeated sin and death. He overcame enemies we could never overcome, and he did it through weakness, not strength. Paul writes a lot about this weakness in the New Testament. He writes in 1 Corinthians, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are Why?" so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Paul goes on to teach the same lesson that Jacob learned in the midst of this battle with the Lord. He writes, because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts Boast in the Lord. So so God comes to Jacob and he wrestles with him and and he's showing him that most of Jacob's wrestling throughout his life, all these struggles that he's had, ultimately they've, they've been with God. Jacob's desires have been in tension with God's desires. His will has been in tension with God's will. And if you feel like this morning that you are in a spiritual rut, if you feel distant from God, if you feel cold to God, it could very likely be that your idols and not the Lord are running the control center of your heart. And you are likely living in tension with God. Now, now while Jacob may have been strong enough to outlast and overcome his father, his brother, his uncle, and anyone else, he cannot overcome the Lord, and this is the lesson that he needed to learn, and this what we need to learn. This is the this is entirely the point of our lives in Jesus. We cannot be wise or righteous enough. We cannot sanctify or redeem ourselves. But Christ has become to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. We overcome in this world not through strength, but through weakness. We thrive in life not by being the best, not by having the most, not by impressing other people, but by seeing that by losing our battle with the Lord, by submitting to Him in glad dependence, we really win. So that at the end of the day all of our boasting is in the Lord. Now here's what I love about this passage at the end. I love how the scene ends. The sun is rose upon him as he passed Peniel, limping because of his hip. Jacob, he left his lonely night in the darkness with a brand new posture. He's changed. He's different. He left with a limp to face Esau and his 400 men. And we're actually told in Genesis 33... That Jacob, if you, you can actually look there in Genesis 33, right at the beginning, Jacob lifted up his eyes and he looked out and behold, it says, Esau was coming and four hundred men with him. Oh man, Scorsese would have made an amazing movie out of this scene. It's amazing. How does Jacob react? He looks up and behold, there's Esau with his four hundred men. And just the night before, before he wrestles with the Lord, he is absolutely terrified. And he's trying to prove himself strong enough, prove himself worthy. He wants to to put on a strong face to meet Esau with all the strength and all the might that he can muster. And then the Lord wrestles with him, the Lord weakens him, and now he meets him differently. His fear has faded, his worries about being rejected are gone. He, He divides his children among his two wives and... He led the way. And as he walked, he walked with a limp. You see, Jacob needed this limp in order to live his life content in the Lord and dependent on the Lord. He no longer needed to appease others or justify himself because God is appeased and God has justified him. Jacob learned what we need to learn, that walking with a limp is the best way to walk. So do do you feel like you have a limp this morning? Are you wounded? Are you broken? Has your life in some way been dislocated by God? That is the posture of the Christian life. Not by proving yourself stronger than others, but by proving yourself fully dependent on God who is stronger. The posture of the Christian life is men and women who have been dislocated by the work of God in their lives, caused to limp under his mighty hand. Those who follow Jesus and keep in step with the Spirit are not those running with long, strong strides. Those who walk with Jesus, walk with a limp, fully aware of their weakness and of their need for the Lord. Now, if if your past and your shame is behind you, just like Jacob's, and your version of Esau and his 400 men are in front of you, I want to encourage you and leave you with the words of of Psalm 46. Don't try to prove yourself strong enough to handle whatever it is you're facing. Instead, take counsel here from Psalm 46. Be still and know, be still and know that I am God. You know how Psalm 46 ends? I love it. Psalm 46 ends like this. The God of Jacob. The God of Jacob is our refuge. And if God can be a refuge for Jacob, he can be a refuge for you.